Today is my conversation with Dr. Mauro Guillen, a Spanish-American sociologist, political economist, management educator. But I know him because he is the former dean of the Cambridge Business School. He's also a fellow at Queen's College, so we share that in common too. He has built a series of research helping us look at those great trends, how they'll collide, and how they'll reshape the future of everything so that we can zoom out to get that perspective in order to zoom in and make trade-offs that allow us to design a life that really matters. So let's get to it. Thank you to everyone who has subscribed to this podcast. And if you are not one of those people, subscribe right now. Pause, subscribe, and then make it easy on yourself to get new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday. Mauro, welcome to the podcast. Oh, Greg, thank you for having me. I've been longing for this interview here today. Well, that's a very kind thing to say at the beginning. I mean, you and I, we can't say we go way back because it was all quite recent, but we met at the Judge Business School at Cambridge University, and you made time in my very first week there to meet with me, which I appreciate. And I thought that you were going to be around at Cambridge longer than I was. <laughs> but this is not what happened. Uh, my enjoyment is cut off short. Life, you know, surprises you. And there are many twists and turns, unfortunately. Well, you've done some great research on a new book, and we're going to get to that. But I am curious about that journey. When you started the journey, did you expect to be there a decade? I assumed it to be five years plus another five years, which is a decade, yes. But then, <laughs> of course, you know, my wife didn't move to the UK and we had to reconsider everything because personal life and family, I think, is more important than work. Yeah, well, I mean, look, you don't have to convince anybody on this podcast of that because we believe in doing what's essential. Nevertheless, I wondered if the experience itself was what you expected it to be. Yes, it was. Cambridge is a lovely place. It's quaint. You can easily go to the big city if that's what you want to do on a given day. But Cambridge is this amazing place where you meet all sorts of people, including yourself. Well, that's a kind thing to say, and it is good to have you here. You have been doing new research. It seems in a way to be an extension of the work that you've been doing before in these series of mega trends every 10 years, looking at what will be around the corner in, in 2020, then in 2030 and so on. But this is a little different. Can you tell us a bit about this new book? Well, this new book is about what I think the future of how we live our lives is going to look like. We are seeing major changes in the world, including the decline in the number of babies, and also the fact that we live longer. And finally, we see technological change shaping everything we do at work, at home, during our leisure time. And so uh, the book is about the perennials, how we're seeing everywhere that people are no longer really acting their age in the same way that they used to, that people are rejecting those stereotypes about old and young and what you should be doing at different ages. That's in a nutshell what the book is about. Now, the word was perennials, and the idea, if I'm not mistaken, is 
to distinguish this from millennials and the, all of the other vernacular that we use for each micro generation that comes along and how we are supposed to think about each group as having a particular set of behaviors and mindsets. And we think about it in a sort of very group way. But what you're saying is that you see evidence that we are shifting past those what you think are artificial determinants of behavior. No, absolutely. I mean, I think we're moving into a post-generational, if you want to put it that way, kind of society and economy where once again, we are not restricted to whatever is age appropriate. So in other words, we can see people learning, attending school at a very advanced age, which is something that didn't really happen in big numbers until now. Or we can see that we have multiple generations in the workplace. Or we can see that our usual living arrangements, which was, if you remember, the nuclear family. You remember Little House on the Prairie? That's from your part of, of the world, in a way. So we are no longer seeing you know, two parents and one or more kids, plus a refrigerator, a washing machine, and a car in every household. Now we're seeing more complicated patterns, living arrangements out there. Let's come back to this point that you made as part of the trend that, that there will be fewer children. So a very surface understanding is that we have an increase in population the world over, that it's going to go on in a sense forever. I've definitely heard of people being alarmed by that, and maybe there are alarmists involved in that conversation. But when you actually look at the data, you find a very different trend. Can you talk a bit more about that? Well, I mean, this has been going on for quite a while already, like in very rich countries like the United States or Europe or Japan, even in China, right, which is an emerging market, that the number of babies has been dropping for the last 30, 40, 50 years, depending on the country. So the last time we had a baby boom, for example, in the United States was in the 1950s. The last time that there was a baby boom in Europe, including the UK, was in the late 50s, in the early 60s, and so on and so forth. So this number has been dropping. And to the point about the size of the human population on Earth, I think we can safely assume that by the year 2060, 2070, 2080, we will reach a maximum, we will reach a plateau. And in other words, that the population will probably not grow any further than that. Now, whether that's at 9 billion or 10 billion human beings, we shall see. But I think every demographer, every expert on population these days is projecting that the population you know, on Earth, a human population that is, will reach some kind of a plateau. Yes. And there's a narrative that still exists that this is just growing exponentially even. And yet when you look at it, you find that, the, that it's a completely different shape than people are expecting. Because even while you have some countries in the emerging markets where population is increasing, as you say, in the developed countries, you find that we aren't even at the level of continuation of our existing population sizes. Can you speak specifically to Japan, for example, that was one of the earlier countries to, to reach this point? Well, Japan is one of the countries where fertility, meaning the number of babies per woman, has been dropping for the longest time. And as you know, they have a serious process of population aging. They have 30 to 35% of their population above the age of 60 already. Uh, and that is just a new situation that we haven't seen in the world before. We are new to this, to this process by which, you know, there are more grandparents than grandchildren, if you allow me to put it that way. Right. So just yes. imagine that kind of a world. 
Well, what does that mean? I mean, that's that, let's slow that down for a second because that was a you shared that to me in our previous meeting. But this idea there are more grandparents than grandchildren in Japan today. That's a current situation. Is that correct? When you well, were I, growing up, or I was growing up, yes. remember there were many grandchildren, right? Yes, the ratio is completely different. You know, it's the, completely different. The, the assumption is that. For every grandparent, you're going to have multiple children, and then even more grandchildren. And it's shaped, you know, it's a tree shape in its expansiveness. But that has not been true for Japan and elsewhere for, as you say, some time now. What are the ramifications of that trend on the social programs that have been built in these governments? Well, the first obvious consequence is that we have perhaps too many schools and too many colleges, too many seats in educational institutions, or so we think. Unless, of course, we have people of different ages also studying. Right.、Mm. The other thing is that we have pressure on social programs, healthcare, and pension systems. Those are the obvious ones, right? But there are several other things that are going on. So, for example, we have more and more people who are living alone. Okay, they don't have any children. They don't live together with anybody else. In the United States, for example, it's up to thirty percent of households now have a single individual. Now,、mm. some of those, of course, are widowers or people who you know lost their spouse or partners, and their children are already gone. But there's a lot of young people as well living alone. Thirty percent in the U.S. I just spoke to somebody a couple of Sundays ago who shared how for six months he'd lived in isolation, complete isolation, because of. I won't say the pandemic, but because of the lockdowns around the pandemic, and then the next week, a completely different person I spoke to who had the same situation for two years, because he'd been furloughed at work, and he has no immediate family, and he wasn't allowed to travel. He had total isolation, as isolated as I think a person reasonably can be for two years, and they're of course not isolated. Incidences. So the ramifications of this are, of course, on multiple levels. But have you looked at what the ramifications are at the psychological level? Well, not at this point in particular. The book doesn't really talk about you know the problems of people who are lonely, unless we're talking about people who have decided to retire and they feel lonely, not because they don't have somebody else living in their household, but because they have been by retiring they cut themselves off from their social circle at work. A very important motivation for something that is also changing right now, which is well, we see so many people who retired or partially retired, and then they decide to go back into doing something, whether it is by getting employed again at a company or organization, or they decide to do some or perform some work over the internet in the form of gig work or as freelancers. A big wave that we're seeing right now in that respect, especially in the United States, which where it is so much easier to do that than in other parts of the world, where, as you know, there are restrictions imposed by governments on what you can do once you retire. One of the things that's so interesting, just to pick up on here in this theme, is that over that same period of time that you're describing with this population change, there's been this massive increase in Alzheimer's. There has been an 87% increase in Alzheimer's cases. Over the last ten years, which means that you can't explain it by genetics. You have to accept that there's a lifestyle element to、Absolutely. the Alzheimer's. And so, what you're describing as this increased longevity of the human experience, combined with the old rules 
and social expectations of retirement around 65 means that you can have 20 or 30 years of disengagement. And I think you add to it this other factor of, okay, there, there aren't as many grandchildren, there isn't the family dynamic and that meaning necessarily. I don't know. It's just an interesting unintended consequence of increasing longevity at some level without changing the habits, behaviors, and lifestyle that will help to have strong mental cognition into those later years. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, it gets even worse than that, Greg, because it's not only that people retire and then they stay at home, they're cut off from their social circle at work, and that contributes to the development of some of those you know, conditions like Alzheimer's. Mm. But it's even worse because what people do when they retire on average is that they watch more TV. And that actually compounds the effect of so the social isolation from not working. It actually compounds it. What does that mean? It doesn't, it's not, doesn't surprise me. What does it mean? Well, because you're passive. You're just listening to the TV, right? It's not interactive. And you're not talking to other human beings. You're not doing what we all do all day long, which is interact socially. So it is also those bad habits that on average people, not everyone, but on average people acquire during retirement that then uh, exacerbate that effect that you were talking about. This episode is sponsored by Shopify. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. So whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, whenever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. So sell more with less effort, thanks to Shopify Magic, which is your AI-powered all-star. In my experience with every business that I have built, including this podcast, there are breakthrough moments, and those moments are often the result of finding the right partner. And I think that's a way to think about Shopify, because no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash greg, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash greg now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash greg. It's hard for me not to see in these trends that we've discussed so far and others that we could point to a really concerning trend about the disconnectedness of people. I had Jeannie Allen on the show a few months ago who wrote Find Your People. And one of the things that she points out is that in a previous generation, if you didn't have the eggs you needed, if you didn't have something, you'd go and knock on the person, you know, you'd go and knock on your neighbor's door and you'd bother them in a light way. And then if they needed something, they'd bother you. But of course, now we can just go to the shops or we can get Amazon to deliver something really quickly. And so you aren't as connected as a community. If you say the same thing about 
this discombobulation of the traditional family experience that you have 30% of people living completely alone, if you add to that the lockdowns, that it strikes me as not surprising that we're seeing the kinds of statistics we are about social isolation, that the number of friends men and women identify as having has considerably been reduced over the last 10 years, but the trend has been going for the last 30 or 40 years. Am, am I right to feel concerned about this? Well, I think we should be concerned about precisely, yes, that erosion of a community, right? This is a theme that has been around already for quite a while. Mm -hmm. It started with another book, if you remember, The Lonely Crowd, mm -hmm. right? And with Habits of the Heart, another book that documented uh, all of these things that you're talking about. So we have Google now, we have other search engines. If we want to, you know, learn about something, like, for example, uh, when is the next collection of trash uh, on your block? Before this, we would knock on the neighbor's door. But now what we do is we go online and we check on it, right? What do you see AI's role is going to be on the trends that you are talking about? Well, AI, I think, is a revolutionary technology. There's no question about it. But I think most people are assuming that the main effect will be to replace human beings doing this or doing that, perhaps including, you know, being a host on a podcast or being a professor in the classroom like myself, right? That AI armed robots might be able to do your job and my job much better than what we can do. But I think AI will also complement human abilities. I'm going to just give you an example that I talk about in the book, which I think is really important. So we have had for the longest time, this resistance on the part of companies to hire employees in their 50s or their 60s because they prefer to hire younger workers. And you see, employees in their 50s and their 60s or potential employees, they have one big advantage. They have experience. But it is also the fact that they have one ostensible disadvantage, which is that they are suffering from cognitive decline. I'm in my late 50s. I'm sure I'm already suffering from cognitive decline at some level, right? Mm. And I see AI as perhaps being able to help people at, you know, age, whatever it is in their 50s or their 60s, or even beyond that, who would like to continue working because they, file for, they find fulfillment, because they want, not want to be isolated and so on and so forth, to be able to perform as if they were in their 20s. Help by AI. I think we're emphasizing too much how AI is going to replace us. I think we need to think more positively, more optimistically about how AI may uh, increase our capabilities, especially when we see that, that we're declining in certain respects, for example, with age, when it comes to cognitive power. Yeah, I mean, Elon Musk has described AI in a variety of ways. Of course, he sees there being cataclysmic risk associated with the unregulated explosion of really high competence AI tools. So there's that version, but at the same time, he's sort of describing, well, the Tesla bot and how this will be able to revolutionize robotics and be able to you know, provide specialized robots for healthcare or in elderly homes or during surgeries, or he's even suggested you're know, bringing joy to children in hospitals. I mean, there are all mm -hmm, of these mm -hmm. other scenarios. But when I was in Davos, I had a, there was a panel that I attended with three of the world's leading authorities in robotics, or not authorities, I mean, they're practitioners, they're using robotics, they are, you know, they have companies at the cutting edge of this. And I was trying to get behind the machine and to say, you know, are you really imagining that this can meet the emotional or the spiritual needs of another person? 
And really, they just kind of sidestepped the whole question and just answered whatever they had pre-planned to answer. But I'm curious about your own thoughts about this, as there is this these trends moving together. Do you have an optimistic view of this disconnected feeling that many people have right now? Well, I think right now what a lot of people are thinking about is the immediate implications on what is it that they do. And most people I talk to, what they're doing is trying to see how AI, especially large language models like ChatGPT and so on and so forth, how they can use them to do better what they're doing. So I think, Greg, there can be two effects on this, right? One is that we become so much more productive that instead of needing, let's say, five lawyers at a law firm, young lawyers helping document the case, who are looking at all of the jurisprudence on it, and so on and so forth, you can actually get the same work done with two human lawyers plus a very good application of AI, right? So this is what traditional technology has done, that it has increased productivity. That doesn't mean that all lawyers will be without work. That means that we're going to need fewer lawyers to get the same amount of work done. And perhaps the work could be done or completed also more accurately by AI, right? Depending on what we're talking about. So that's one scenario. And people feel threatened by that because they know that perhaps there won't be as many jobs available to them. Let me ask this in a different way. In the book 2030 or in your new book, have you specifically drilled down on the trend of AI? Yes. So I have referred to it in The Perennials and also in 2030, my earlier book, in terms of how it may have an impact on the way we organize our lives moving forward. I believe that AI is probably going to increase our leisure time if we can increase productivity by that much, right? But inevitably, like every new revolutionary technology, it's going to benefit a few people. It's going to you know, have quite a bad effects on others. So it will be, at the end of the day, incumbent upon us to make sure that nobody's left behind because of this new technological revolution. Now, that's one aspect. But before you ask me this last follow-up question, what I wanted to say was that I think the vision that some very pessimistic people have is that we could have a blending uh, or a merger between robotics and AI. And we could have robots out there that, for example, could wage war or could perform tasks or could even you know, come to dominate humans, right, in the most extreme pessimistic views about the matter. So I think the most bleak scenarios, the bleakest scenarios are those that have to do with the convergence of robotics and AI. Yeah, I remember Elon Musk talking about this before ChatGPT, certainly before OpenAI was a household name. He just said, when people say to us, well, you know, there aren't robots on the streets with machine guns, he's like, yeah, by the time that happens, it's over. It's like, it's too late to have the conversation then. And of course, there are many other scenarios AI can have these kinds of, you know, it seems to me to be a mega trend of mega trends, right? It's something that is going to influence and already is influencing enormous areas of our lives and moving at such a rate. I'm thinking here now of the president of Microsoft, Brad Smith, who wrote a book called Tools and Weapons, and he was trying to outline how Technology has, of course, both aspects, as you were just mentioning. It can be a tool, it can be a weapon. And he, I mean, at least he was allowing for both. My experience in Silicon Valley is that very often we are planning for the upsides, sort of assuming that there won't be downsides, that it's an asymmetric scenario, that all technology is an asymmetric thing in our favor. But then, of course, you have these unintended consequences. What was your most surprising finding in your new research? 
The most surprising finding in the perennials is the extent to which we are seeing, especially among people above the age of 50 or 60, that they are adjusting to this new situation by doing things that normally you wouldn't see among those people. So let me just give you a couple of examples here. Please. We have in China about 320 million people above the age of 60. And one third of them, one third, are right now attending college. They're attending special schools that the government has set up for people above the age of 60. And they're learning new skills. And they are, you know, then using those skills to pursue some kind of an occupation, not always, but quite frequently, for pay, right? So this is extraordinary, I think. Is it a government requirement? or No, not at all. It's an opportunity that they have available to them. But we see in the United States something that is different, but that is also really important. You see about 40% of all retirees go back to work, okay? Either for a company or organization, or they become freelancers or in the gig economy. And more than half, I think the statistic was 53%, of early retirees, those who retired early, go back, eventually go back and also work. This is revolutionary. That is to say, we are seeing this breakdown of that, you know, mystical stage in life, which was retirement, with very large numbers of people doing things during retirement that our parents or grandparents didn't used to do. Keep going. What other things are you seeing that are surprising you? Well, I think it surprises me very much that we're seeing multi-generational households, especially in the United States, growing by leaps and bounds. So these are households where you have three or more generations. It's 18%, 1, 8%, 18% of the American population, about 60 million people who live in those households. And you might be thinking, well, those are perhaps poor households. People just, younger people can just leave. No, that's not the case. In more than half of these households, the family income, total income is $100,000, which is above the mean for the American population, which is 70000 So that is clearly not the motive. And then on top of that, the other really striking thing is that poverty among these multi-generational households, the poverty rate, is much lower than for the American population as a whole. Be mindful of the fact that whereas today it's you know about 18% of Americans who live in multi-generational households, 20, 30 years ago, it was less than 5%. So this is a growing trend, uh, which once again defies this model that we had in mind of the nuclear family, that people get together, right? They have kids, and then the kids at some point, they leave the home to study and then to work and to establish or start their own family. Thank you, really thank you for listening to this episode. What is one thing you can do immediately, you know, in the next five to 10 minutes to be able to turn this conversation into action in your life? And who is one person that you can share that action with so that they can help you be accountable and you can help them? For all of you that have written reviews on Apple Podcasts, thank you. If you haven't done that already, you have the chance to get free access to the Essentialism Academy simply by writing a review, posting it there, and letting us know about it. Go to gregmcewan.com forward slash essential for more details. Thank you, and I'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. 
I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.